Welcome to Brother GP. Welcome to the third edition of Rob's Tech Tape. The Brother GP Army and our followers on YouTube came through big with listener questions. So let's get this thing moving. All right, I've now put these tracks on iTunes. So if this is your first time listening to a Rob's Tech Tape, here's how it works. I take questions from social media, from YouTube, from Instagram, from Facebook, from the BrotoGP army, and I answer them. I'm the guy that reads the rule books, so out of BrotoGP at least, I'm the one that's actually going to know this shit. All right, so here we go. Question number one. Nolan from YouTube wants to know, what are the differences between the Moto E bikes going to be for next year? So if you haven't heard, um, Dorna is introducing a new class for the European rounds of the, the whole GP championship, and it's Moto E. It's a spec motorcycle um, produced by Energica. I probably still... Isn't, I'm probably still not pronouncing that correctly. Um, but it's an electric motorcycle. They don't have a clutch. They don't have a gear shifter. It's going to be very different. Um, all those bikes are being given to GP teams that already exist and to a few Moto2 teams. Um, none of the, I don't think any of the factories are running them, but all the satellite teams are racing them. Because of that, I honestly don't think that these bikes are going to differ all that much at all. The bodywork will likely be the same because it's just one motorcycle. Uh, they obviously they can't change the, the electric motor. They can't change the batteries. Um, the only thing that I could see them changing would be the suspension. And yet we know in the GP paddock, everyone is very conservative. Like even in a class like Moto2 where you could build whatever the hell you want, everyone is pretty much on the same thing. I think there are only three suspension suppliers in Moto2, Showa, uh, Olin's, and WPS on the, or WP on the KTMs. So expect maybe one team to have a different suspension in Moto E. Everyone else is probably going to be on Olin's. Um, that's pretty much it for that question. So moving on to number two. Kevin wants to know, why didn't the Ducati carbon monocoque frame work in MotoGP? So obviously he's referring to the GP9 to the GP11 that was run by Ducati with Casey Stoner and that first year that Valentino Rossi was on it. It did work. They won seven races. That's actually the same number of races that Davizioso has won on the current Ducati. So it worked. The only problem was that it got worse and worse every single year. Um, A monocoque is kind of a bad idea in GP at the moment because we have engine limits. It's actually an impossible idea with today's rules because we have an engine freeze. So a monocoque is a frame that bolts to the engine itself. So if you want to make drastic frame changes, you have to modify the engine. If you want to move the engine around, can you? Can you actually move the engine around like they can with a with a twin spar aluminum chassis or even KTM's trellis frame, right? The other thing too that is kind of a consequence of having a monocoque bolt to the engine is that the engine must be stiffer to support the loads of the chassis. Because it must be stiffer, it's heavier, it's now really de- like now the weight bias of the motorcycle is really dependent on where that is. So it's it's generally just a bad idea in my mind to go for a monocoque chassis. Ducati is, they got away with it in a World Superbike with the Panigale, even though they're kind of now moving away from it slightly with the new one. They've made the spars longer. It looks less like a monocoque each time, even though it still is. But yeah, probably a bad idea in MotoGP, and I don't think we'll ever see it again. All right, question number three. Come on, question number three. What are you doing? Move. There we go. Um, Claudio wants to know, uh, what about electronic suspension in Moto2 and Moto3? Is it a good idea? They only have one bike, so it would end up speeding up changes? Bad idea. 
first of all, it would not speed up changes, right? Uh, anytime someone is making like a, a dramatic setup change, they're usually changing out springs, they're changing ride heights. Uh, electronic suspension doesn't take care of that. Electronic suspension generally only does low speed damping and maybe preload. Uh, those two things are super easy to do in the pit box. They're super easy to do on the grid. All the changes uh, can be done pretty fast. Um, as for being a good idea technologically, it's a terrible idea because it's it's a rabbit hole that we don't want to go down. It's super expensive. Um, I say we keep electronic suspension out of it in out of all of motorcycle racing. I mean, it's not legal for use anywhere unless it came stock on a motorcycle. And the stuff that comes stock on a motorcycle is shit for racing. So we don't need to go there. Uh, did I have anything more in my notes there? Nope. All right. Question number four. Damon wants to know, what about the electronics are coming in Moto2? All right. For 2019. So uh, Moto2, they're obviously moving to the Triumph 765 engine for 2019. All the chassis manufacturers are producing new chassis to fit that. The engine is supposedly a uh, just a bored out version of the 675 motor. But the main thing that's going to change, like the engine changes are going to be great. They're going to get more horsepower. We'll, we'll probably see a mix up in the chassis that are actually leading the grid. But it won't be that drastic of a change. Like the good riders are going to be, be able to take care of that. The big drastic change is the electronics. Magneti Morelli is going to be the spec ECU for the 2019 and probably for a couple years after that. I actually think the contract was till 2021. Um, Dorna requested that a bunch of manufacturers for electronics uh, submit a tender and submit their hardware for, for consideration. They requested ride by wire. They requested an onboard data logger. They requested 102 sensor and they requested a ton of control strategies. So gear shift management, traction control, anti-wheelie, launch control, engine braking control, and torque maps. I actually found the document that the FIM put out for the request. And that's where that all came from. So, so here's the thing. All of that stuff is nearly everything that you'd find in MotoGP. Um, the only thing that we don't actually know is if those settings are going to be position dependent. So like right now in MotoGP, the bike knows where it is on track. It has all the timing sectors. So it's got the start, finish straight, sector one, sector two, sector three, or the end of sector one, two, and three, and potentially four. Um, so with that, the, so the software and the electronics can know where the bike is. So the settings are actually different for each corner that the bike is going through. I don't expect we're going to get that in Moto2. I think they'll leave it a little simple. They'll just have one engine braking table parameter, a table of parameters per track, right? We're not going to get it per corner. Same thing goes for the torque map, the track control, the gear shift management. Dorna has said that they're going to leave some functionality out um, for the first go of things. So we might, they might leave out traction control. They might leave out launch control and, and anti-wheelie. They have specifically said though, that they're definitely going to include engine braking control, engine braking control with fly by wire is dramatically more sophisticated than engine braking control that they're currently running in moto two. And I think the riding style will change dramatically. And it, I think it'll help be a better step or it'll be an easier step from moto two into GP with these control controlled strategies different um as far as and that's actually in the question right is it going to be more in favor of mirror um to stay in moto 2 to get adjusted and then move to gp i'm not entirely sure on that like the adjustment is really going to depend on on the team and the rider a lot of these riders train on r6s or even on super bikes and all those bikes with a good flash can have all of these control strategies and can be adjusted does valentino rossi spend time adjusting the electronics with his uh, VR46 Academy riders? 
Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, but if he did, obviously that would be really helpful to train the riders before they moved into GP. Um, I think mm, someone like Mir, you know, it's all going to, if, if he can get a, an amazing ride in GP, which there aren't really that many left, then he should probably stay in Moto2 and, and get used to all that. All right, moving on to question number five. Jeff wants to know what electronic aids are prohibited in MotoGP, and are there other aids that are prohibited in the other classes? Um, so, no, actually, pretty much nothing is prohibited in MotoGP. The only caveat that we have there is the factories can't actually write their own control strategies, right? We have spec software. So, Magneti Morelli makes the uh, hardware, they also wrote the software. Factories can provide input into the software or not not really input but they can request new control strategies they they can request updates they can, can request anything they want and dorna fim and magneti morelli decide whether or not they're going to do it when they're going to do it and when they're going to release it um so the the factories are allowed to write the software for their imu which is kind of a stupid backdoor thing that they got into the rulebook that i absolutely hate um, the factories are also allowed one extra sensor besides that IMU, and most of them are using a torductor on the countershaft sprocket. So it, a torductor is just a, a sensor that measures torque. You know, so it, it makes sense that you'd put it on the countershaft sprocket. Um, they use that can actually provide data into the IMU and affect how the tract the IMU essentially tells the ECU what the bike is doing. Um, so so in that regard, they can write some control strategies, but they can't like. Like, what else is there to add, right? We already have torque maps. We already have traction control. We already have anti wheelie. We already have all of those things that are corner-based, lean angle-based, right? There's so much. I don't think you could write a new strategy and give it a new name and say it's something different. Um, as far as the differences between the classes, Moto2 and Moto3 currently are forced to have a cable connecting the throttle grip and the throttle bodies. So there are no, there is no ride by wire. There can't be. And because of that, the control strategies and the rider aids in Moto2 and Moto3 are dramatic. They're just, they're way stupid, right? The, the traction control, the engine braking control, everything you can get out of software that is where the rider is still actually connected to the throttle bodies is not nearly as good as when the computer can control the throttle bodies for you. Um, so there's nothing actually, they, there's nothing that says that, uh, the control strategies aren't allowed in Moto2 and Moto3, but in those classes as well, they also have a spec ECU, right? Moto2 runs a Honda Supersport ECU, uh, the a kit the HRC kit box, and then Moto3 has the Delorto spec ECU too. So the, the teams aren't writing new things. They're just using what's provided. All right, moving on. Question number six. So Paul posted this one twice for me. He got it on YouTube and on uh, and on Facebook. But all right, he wants to know he wants a comparison between the 500cc two strokes and modern four strokes when it comes to engine braking. In my last video and now episode on iTunes, I talked about how I thought that engine braking control was the most important rider aid for getting into the corner and producing a good lap time. Now I said it was important. I didn't actually say that the riders are using lots of engine braking. So that's that's a major distinction that we got to make here. Um, for sure, a GP bike, even a super bike, even my motorcycle has probably one-fifth or less the amount of engine braking compared to that same street bike. Like my R6, I have the engine braking turned down really, really far. The throttle bodies stay open a couple of degrees or a couple of percent 
every time I roll off the throttle and get into the corner. I need it like that. It just it helps you get in the corner faster. We also have slipper clutches that are really good in racing that prevent engine braking from actually making it to the rear wheel. Because of all that, I think I, I, I don't know if I can make the comparison and say that MotoGP has a similar amount of engine braking compared to 500cc two-strokes from a long time ago. That's probably still not true because engine braking does help you slow down for the corner, but I don't think they have that much more. Um, as far as differences in braking markers or how, how differences in engine braking affect corner entry compared to 500cc and MotoGP, honestly, I think major differences in braking markers would and riding uh, styles would come from differences in tires. Uh, the, the current GP front tires are so stiff. They require crazy amounts of trail braking. Like the, the MotoGP riders hold, hold dramatic amounts of brake pressure all the way to the apex of the corner. World Subaru bike, they have to hold less brake pressure to the apex because the Pirelli tires are a bit softer. Um, but even in, even in club racing, right, we probably trail brake further or club racing or Moto America, we probably trail brake further than some 500cc two stroke riders did back in the day. Because, I mean, everyone used to talk about get the bike stopped, flick it in, and then drive it out. No one rides like that anymore. Now we trail brake all the way to the apex, get the bike turned, and then go. All right, moving on. Question number seven. Mark wants to know about training. So that this comes up every single time someone gets hurt. But um, he says, given the high number of injuries and uh, one death, rest in peace, Nikki Hayden. We got uh, that right there. Uh, from training accidents while cycling or riding dirt bikes, do you think these training methods should still be used by GP riders? Uh, first of all, absolutely yes. Um, you can't you can't replace adequate training with anything else, right? Uh, cycling is a great way to get all that cardio, get some leg strength going. I actually rode my bicycle 100 miles last weekend. Um, 70 of them were were with uh, two of my stronger friends, and then the other 30 were were a pr- kind of a cool down. Um, uh, dirt bike, like all the riders, all the GP riders have come out and said that they need these training, uh, th- this ability to train like this because riding a GP bike is so hard, right? We can't take it away from them. There's no way in hell you're going to be able to like what have Dorna say that they can't do this. Um, as I mean, as far as deaths from training, uh, Nikki may or may not have ran a stop sign. Cycling of course is dangerous. I like to ride with other people in a group just because it, it, cars can see you better um but yeah you gotta you gotta keep safety on your side you gotta make sure that you're responsible for that at all times um but yeah uh as far as the rest of my training because he's also asking that here too um i cycle i rock climb uh occasionally i'll do a hike i mean i've hiked mount whitney sort of off the couch before um what else what else do i do oh and i'm actually starting a weight training program to eliminate all of these uh these these bird limbs, as Kev likes to say. Um, but yeah, no, GP riders need to be able to train any way that they, they want to to produce the best racing possible for us. All right, moving on. Question number eight. Michael wants to know. Now, this is – I explicitly asked for hard questions on the uh, Broda GP Army post, and this is a good one. Why do motorcycle swing arms use a single-axis pivot point and hope like hell that their chassis flexes just right at lean versus an omnidirectional or bidirectional pivot point with shock absorbers set up like an off-road vehicle? All right. All right. So so the, the main point here that Michael is asking about is the fact that the further you lean over a motorcycle, the less effective your suspension becomes, right? If your bike is leaned over at 45 degrees – to, to handle a, like any bump of any size, if in order to, for the suspension to move vertically at that size, it, the suspension must actually move 41% further. 
um, that increases the effective spring rate, that lowers grip, that makes it just more difficult for the suspension to do its job. Because of that, MotoGP factories, even, even factories that produce production bikes, have made sure that they include some amount of flex in the chassis, in the frame, in the swing arm, in the triple clamp, in the forks, to handle that amount of movement when the bike is leaned over. Like most recently, the new R6 was released in uh, in the 2017 model, and the forks the forks were replaced with stiffer models that are very similar to the R1. To compensate for the stiffer forks, because a bunch of riders that tested it said they said it just didn't work very well, they made the triple clamp more flexible. And that's just the kind of things that you have to take into account when you're building a race bike. So why don't MotoGP bikes have a more complicated swing arm pivot to handle this? One, complexity and weight, right? If we add new shock absorbers, new springs to the whole system, shit's going to get heavy. It's going to get complicated. More stuff's going to break. Like it's an engineering challenge they could probably get around, but... You know, like it's still when you're talking about a race machine where you want to be able to change things quickly and easily, that's kind of important. Um, uh, what's what question? We're on question number eight. Where did my notes go? All right. Um, the other thing too is swing arms are a spring, right? Like that's that that was part of the question. Why don't we use a, a different pivot point with shock absorbers set up like an off road vehicle? But the swing arm is a spring. Any material, when applied to force, will deform slightly. So the swing arm is a spring. And factories definitely know how much their swing arm flexes given a certain corner, right? Given a certain load. They know how much it flexes in the lateral direction, <clears throat> in the vertical direction. They don't know how much it rotates, how much the axle rotates. They know all this stuff. They're, they're, they have to do that, right? The other thing is we need really, 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 really stiff springs on a swing arm, not not on the suspension direction, but in the other direction, to keep the tire oriented vertically with the motorcycle. Motorcycles turn with what's called camber thrust, or that's the primary force. Because the tire is is rounded, when when the tire leans over, it kind of continues to fall over and continues to lean over. That produces camber thrust that holds a motorcycle in the corner. That's how a motorcycle can be taking a really tight corner at a crazy steep lean angle, but the handlebars are only turned a tiny bit. Whereas in order for a car to take that uh, that same turn, the front tires would have to be turned a dramatic amount. So it's the difference between slip angle and camber thrust. So suspension must be really stiff, or the swing arms must be really stiff, and the forks to keep the tire oriented like that. If we uh, if we start adding springs and stuff, I mean, could you make a, a shock absorber and a spring on a pivot just as stiff as a swing arm? You probably not. It would just end up looking like a swing arm, right? This isn't a car where we want to keep the tires perpendicular to the ground. This is a motorcycle where we want the tires to be always in line with the motorcycle. All right, that one was complicated, and uh, we got one more complicated one towards the end here. But all right, moving on. Question number nine. So Ryan, Ryan actually uh, posted a ton of questions for me, and I'll get to some of them in later episodes. But here is his last one. When teams move from a dry to a wet setup, why do they change the fork springs and all the components individually? Why not just have a pre-built front end with uh, with with everything set up so they can just slide it into the triple clamps? All right. So one, I don't think it would save time. Like, have you ever tried to take a front end off a motorcycle without removing the front tire? It's a pain in the ass. 
everything, the alignment must be so perfect on stuff that the front end doesn't just slide out. I mean, hell, maybe, I don't know, maybe the last time I was doing it, one fork was slightly bent. But <clears throat> tiny differences in tolerances can make that nearly impossible to get the front end out. Two, there are, there are alignment issues anytime you uh, assemble a front end uh, incorrectly, right? Like the, the, the forks must be the same exact distance apart as the triple clamp. So you'd have to assemble it into the triple clamp, pull it out, then hope that nothing moved. You'd also have to make sure that the brake rotors were all in the right spot. Like assembling a front end and getting everything aligned is, is complicated. And I think introducing this new way of putting a front end together would just make that way more difficult. <clears throat> Another thing, you'd still need to swap the shock. Teams already do that, right? They'll just have one shock set up for the wet, one set up for the dry. So you're not saving time any there. And then lastly, the fork spring swaps are super fast. Um, the, the example that Ryan brought up was Brattle in Germany from a few years ago and how the team missed one of the springs. So he essentially rode around on half wet and half dry setup um, and did poorly in the race because of it. I don't know why they failed at that. Um, like... Uh, swapping a fork spring on a nice Olin's cartridge is literally unscrew the caps, lower the front end, put your little fork tool in there, unscrew the, the cap off the cartridge, pull the springs out and reassemble, right? It's not, uh, I feel like a, a professional GPU mechanic can do it in minutes, not 15 or whatever. Something else went wrong. Um, with that. And then as far as damping changes and whatnot, um, uh, when I ride in the wet, it's mostly just reduce the clicker settings a little bit pull out some preload after you change the springs. Like they don't need to change the entire fork cartridge. And obviously now we even have GP teams or most all the GP teams are using carbon brake rotors in the wet. So they don't even need to swap rotors anymore. All they do is bolt on a, uh, a better cover to keep the rotors a little bit warmer. So probably a bad idea. I don't think we're ever going to see it happen. They'll just keep doing it. And if they need to, they can have one more person helping out. All right. Question number 10. Uh, Wilton and Julian want to know about Josh Heron's uh, attack performance Heron compound motorcycle. Uh, Josh Heron racing in Moto America Superbike uh, got second place once he got onto. Um, oh, wait, was it second or third? Oh, shit. Dropping the ball. We'll have to ask Josh Heron. Uh, but all right. Julian wants to know what goes into building a monster machine like his attack bike. So there's there's tons of stuff. I mean, I'd say that 50% of, of everything that goes into building a superbike is just bolt-on parts, um, like new triple clamp, new forks, uh, new wheels, new rotors, right? Uh, new subframe. Uh, and then and then there's a whole bunch of more complicated things, right? Like the, the fork tune, a shock tune, uh, getting all those settings perfectly, getting the right heights good, making sure that everything's good. Um, the motor build is obviously very complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes in. Even, even with our pared down rules now for superbike racing, there's still a lot of technical expertise that goes into building one of those motors. They, they are still allowed to modify the cylinder heads. So you'll either have people doing any porting and polishing Probably not porting doesn't happen that much anymore because of uh, how good the uh, it, the runners are from a uh, from the factory cylinder head. But they do actually a lot of times they'll add epoxy into the intake and exhaust runners to decrease the size of the runner and kind of improve the velocity of the gases flowing through there. Um, and I, was, I mean, you know, they can they can't change the bottom end anymore, but they can deck the head, they time the cams, all that stuff. The more the more changes that you do, the more you have to test and tune all this stuff, right? Like like unless you've built that exact motor before and beaten your competition, you know it's good enough. 
how are you going to know like if i how are you going to know if something if something that you're trying is the right change like if i went and built my r6 motor today with no expertise i don't even know what angle to time the cams at what degree to time the cams at so i'm not going to be able to build a good motor that's why you have really good expert built motor builders they they get paid a lot because they have that intellectual property they have the knowledge to do it right the first time um, superbike motors, right. Or superbike, superbikes in general also get new wiring harness, new ECUs. Um, obviously all the quick shifter stuff, all that must be tuned. It's gotta be dyno tuned. When you buy an ECU from Magneti Morelli, it's not like getting a flash done on your OEM ECU. You have to fill out every single data table because the base setting that it came with might be useless. It might come with a bunch of zeros and you got to fill it out. So, so building a real superbike, especially with the electronics, is a huge pain in the ass. Um, I mean, they also they also have the data logger, so you got to put potentiometers on the suspension. You got to connect that to the wiring harness, make sure it records TPS, records all your IMU stuff, right? So much stuff, information there, so much to do. It's insane that Josh Heron and uh, his attack team were even able to build that attack bike in as little time they did. I it, I feel like it would take me an entire year to get one built. Um, uh, second part of that question, what is different about Josh Heron's swing arm, his custom swing arm and the pros and cons of that? I know for a fact that the swing arm is longer because the announcers said that, um, it might be lighter. It might be stiffer, but Hey, let's ask Josh Heron in a couple of weeks. All right. Moving on. Question number 11. Now, James Doyle, the other hard question, <clears throat> James Doyle wants to know what is the largest technical failure for any setup in each class? So technical, technical failure to me means like, the thing that the team either failed at doing or did that just absolutely screwed the rider over and made them have a bad race. I mean, we're, we're going to, we're going to discount things like, <clears throat> I don't know, like a motor blowing or, or not putting in a fuel, like some stupid mistakes. Let's just talk about setup. So in MotoGP, I think the most important part about any setup on any GP bike is the electronic setup. Uh, we've seen time and time again that electronics will make or break a rider's race because it affects everything else. Um, <clears throat> electronic setup, right? First major impact is your rear tire wear, even your front tire wear, because if you have the engine braking control wrong, your front tire is going to see unnecessary loads, right? Uh, if your electronic setup isn't perfect or optimized, then you have to change your chassis setup. If the electronic setup is making the rider work harder, they're going to be more tired at the end of the race. There is so much that goes into this electronic setup, especially because it's corner by corner. Everything needs to be perfect. That's why you see, in my opinion, Ducati and Honda up front still because Yamaha and all the other factories have slightly missed the ball or missed the, missed the ball. That's not even a thing. Have missed the mark uh, with their electronic setup. Yamaha says that they're making progress, but they're still not there yet. Um, as far as the other two classes, uh, they don't really have the electronic setup that, uh, that MotoGP has. They can't change nearly as much because it's spec ECU, because they don't have turn-by-turn -turn adjustments, because they don't have fancy, fancy engine braking control. Uh, they don't really have as many control strategies. So I'm changing that to chassis setup for rider preference. Um, everyone comes in with a base setting. Everyone needs to change slight amounts of things for each track. I mean, the, when I go to a new track, the number one thing that I change is the gearing. Because I changed the gearing, that changes the swing arm length. Because that changes the effective swing arm length, I generally need to change the shock length. Because I need to change the shock length, I might have to change the uh, preload or the clickers. Because I've changed the rear end of the bike, I might have to change the front end. So there's a rabbit hole there. Chassis setup, 
getting the rider comfortable, making sure they have the front end feel to get into the corner, make sure they have the rear grip to get out of the corner. Very important every single weekend. I think that applies to both classes. Oh, second, close second for important things in MotoGP, and this is actually new information, tire pressure. All Michelin is having some, supposedly having some consistency issues with their tires. The tires are supposedly very sensitive to tire pressure. So before maybe you, I mean, even me, like I'll change my tire pressure by a half pound or so. Um, supposedly MotoGP teams are now changing them by 0.1. Um, sorry, I don't mean, did I mean a half pound? Shit, they probably mean bar. Yeah, who knows? I'm going to have to research that again. All right. That is all my questions, except we have one little thing here at the end. Andrew Lee sent me this question on Facebook. Hi, I'm Andrew, longtime listener, first-time commenter. Which tire goes on which wheel? So just to let you know, if you're watching on YouTube, this poster for a Superstock racer in Moto America's Stock 1000 just happens to be Andrew Lee. So Andrew Lee is screwing with all of us. He knows which tire goes on which wheel. The big one goes on the rear wheel. The little one goes on the front wheel. Andrew. Stay away from the tires, ride the damn bike, win some races. All right, everyone. That's all I have for Rob's Tech Tape today. Um, You will catch this on iTunes. Uh, You will catch this on YouTube. Um, Please leave me some comments, anything I got wrong, anything I got right, any more questions that you have in the comments below in the YouTube video. Um, uh, Up next for for BrotoGP is MotoGP and Hareth. So we got that uh, that coming up, and you'll hear us in about a week for that. And we are lining up some interviews. We will talk to some other racers and some other people. We've got more stuff in the works. Thanks for listening to Brota GP. Like, share, and subscribe this video. Peace.